We're in the midst of a uh, sermon series, and uh, the reason I thought to tell that joke is actually because of my dad. Uh, our, our sermon series is called Unlikely Heroes, and uh, we came into that because we did a series called Not a Fan, asking ourselves, are we a fan of Jesus, or are we a fully devoted follower of him? Because fans stand on the sidelines, and fans are fickle. Fans are all in when things are good, and they're downtrodden and yelling and screaming and angry when things are, are not going well. And so a uh, fully devoted follower is there through thick and thin. So we started asking that question. Then we wanted to examine some examples from Scripture of people who were unlikely heroes. When I was a junior in high school, uh, it was Hero Day, and I unashamedly dressed like my dad going to work. And, uh, and I still I don't make any apology for that. Uh, my dad's always been one of my heroes uh, but my dad would term himself an unlikely hero. You know, it, he, he would say that he looks back on his fathering of me growing up and would do so many things differently, and we just had some good conversations about that. So I was able to verbalize some of that to him. Uh, most of our heroes are unlikely. That's what really brings them to the surface in a hero's story. Um, I'm sure that heroes of... Uh, the war era of the World War II weren't as, you know, at two and three years old, their parents probably didn't say, that young man's going to be a war hero. You know, that young man's going to save a lot of lives. They, they might have thought some things along the lines of what this person was capable of, but uh, when someone becomes a hero to us, it's not something that really they expected to see happen. And we see that riddled through Scripture. So we looked at uh, three examples so far, and we started off looking at, uh, from a worldly standpoint, the most unlikely of heroes, and that was Jesus. How he came, uh, how he lived, he, he was very common, and, and he's not what the community, the religious community today expected. They expected this guy to come in and just thump Rome for them, and that's not how Jesus came in. He was a very unlikely hero. We talked about Gideon and how he's an unlikely hero because he won this huge war just being obedient to God with some torches and clay pots. And if you're not familiar with that story, go back on our website and listen to Adam preach that message from two weeks ago. Last week, Adam uh, preached here, and I'm going to talk about myself in third person. The other guy who preaches here on a regular basis is Adam LaRue. And, uh, and he spoke on Abraham and how Abraham's faith in God brought him into uh, a different phase of relationship and how Abraham was promised these, uh, this promise that he would, his, his line would populate the world, that, that the promises of God would come through the line of Abraham. And at close to 100 years old, he and his wife had their first and only uh, child together. So it's a crazy story. Today, on the heels of Abraham, we're going to look at an, a very unlikely hero, probably out of our list that we've covered, the most unlikely of them, and uh, her name was Rahab. So if you have a Bible with you, turn it to Joshua chapter 2. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab the one in the chair in front of you, and it's actually on page 122. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 2. Now, there's 24, 24 verses in this chapter, but for us to get a real good grasp on what's happening here, uh, you need to hear all of it. So we're going to read through Joshua chapter 2. And uh, like I said, if you want to use the Bible in front of you, that's on page 122. Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 1. 
Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho went to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them in the stalks of flax that she had laid in in, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go, go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now this is a very robust story. There's a lot here. We could tear this apart and preach it over two, three weeks if we wanted to. But uh, I want you to get a good grip of who Rahab was. When it says prostitute, she was very good at what she did. She had very wealthy place to live. She lived in the city walls. That was the safest place to live. It was the most fortified city in the known world, Jericho. 
and her home was inside those walls with a window view of the world outside. Most of the people that lived in Jericho lived inside Jericho. The only view they had was the wall. And they knew they were safe because of it. She got to see what the world looked like outside her walls. Not only that, but what she did for a living was sleep with men who were not her husband. Now, she's not allowed to tell people why she's inviting her family to stay with her. She doesn't know when the Israelites are going to come back to her city. But she's got to get her family to come live with her in the midst of her career choices and not tell them why. But the thing that stood out to me about this, and I want you to hear it again because it's around verse 11. She's talking about all the stories that have happened coming out of the Israelites. And she mentions this phrase, the tail end of verse 11. She says, For the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So what she asks these men to vow is based on something that she's, she's believing God is who he says he is, but she's doing that based on the stories she's heard. That's it. She lives in a godless country, in a godless city, full of false gods and idols. And she says to these guys, your God is the God of heaven and the God of earth. Now, for this to all make sense, I think we need to backtrack a little bit. How in the world did the Israelites get here? So let's go back to what Adam talked about with Abraham. Abraham is the father of all these nations, right? So let's make sure that we understand how we got from Abraham to here. God promises all the land to Abraham. Not only does he promise them the land as far as he can see, but he tells them that your people will populate this, your family the people who live in this land, I promise you, will all be able to track their lineage back to you. That's what God tells him. And he says that the descendants that come from your name will outnumber the stars in the sky. That's an insane amount of people, right? He's saying this to a very old man. So God makes good on that promise with the land. Then he makes good on the promise with the sun. We talked about that last week. So Isaac then grows into an old man. He has sons. He has twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's a liar. That's literally what his name means, deceiver. So Jacob wants to get ahead in life. So he deceives his father, gets the birthright. And after that, the promises of God follow Jacob, which that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but that's for another sermon. So the promises of God follow Jacob. Jacob spends one whole night wrestling with God. And at the end of this wrestling match, he says, I will not let go until you give me a promise, until you give me a blessing. So God reaffirms the blessing, reaffirms the promise. All this land will belong to you, and the descendants that live in this land will all be able to track their lineage back to your grandfather, Abraham. But then God changes his name. And this is a huge turning point in the Old Testament. God changes his name from Jacob, deceiver. He changes his name to Israel, which means one who struggled with God. So from that point on, any time in Scripture that we mention the nation of 
Israel or the Israelites. They are all people who descended from Israel. Do you understand that's where the name came from? That's named after a man. So Jacob has sons, several of them. But he has one son, Joseph. And the story sort of focuses in on him in Genesis. His brothers are jealous of him. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. His brothers are jealous of him. He is the favorite. He's the baby. If you're the baby and you, got, you, you were the favorite in the family, you drove your older siblings crazy. If you're the older sibling and you have the baby in your family, uh, you, you probably were tempted to do what Joseph's brothers did. They threw him in a pit and they sold him to slaves. Okay? And uh, if, you had, if, you, if you have the baby sibling, you older siblings are probably like, yeah, I've thought about doing that. So, in an ironic twist of events, it can only be described through the grace and mercy of God. Joseph becomes, through his planning and through God's grace in his life, he becomes second in command in Egypt, the most powerful government system in the known world at that time. There's a famine in the land. And for people to get food during the famine, they have to venture into Egypt. They have to sit in front of Pharaoh's number two and ask permission to get food from the storehouses. So who walks in one day but Joseph's brothers? They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And this is his moment he can have revenge. But that's not what he does. He reveals himself to them. He calls for his dad, he gets permission from Pharaoh, and all of that family, all of the family of Israel gets brought into Egypt to live there and enjoy the bounty of Egypt because they were ready for the famine. So now the Israelites are welcomed into Egypt to enjoy the bounty of Egypt. They are one with the people in Egypt. But they knew something somewhere along the lines that the Egyptians didn't know. And the promises of God with the Israelites and the Israelites' families are increasing at a greater number than the Egyptian families are. And the new Pharaoh comes in. Joseph's passed away. And the new Pharaoh comes in and says, no, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Why is there so many people here who aren't Egyptian eating all our food, living off our land and taking all our stuff? I want to build nice buildings and I'm tired of paying our people to do it. These people aren't Egyptian. They want to live here. They're going to earn their keep. They're all our slaves now. So they make the Israelites, who were at one point welcomed into this, the nation of Israel, they get welcomed in. Now they're no longer welcome. They get transformed into slaves. And God steps in yet again and says, I will rescue you from this mess. The promise holds true. I will give you the land I promise. Things do not look good for the Israelite people. But it seems like every time things don't look good for the Israelite people, God steps in and makes a way. And in, his own, the own, in, in a way only God could do, he allows one baby boy to survive this massive purge of baby boys, Moses. And he gets raised in the Egyptian house. He knows the land. He knows the people. And God calls that man, Moses, to go back into Egypt and say, let my people, because I'm an Israelite, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. So then the plagues come, 10 plagues, gnats and frogs and blood-filled rivers. I mean, it's nasty. But the worst one of all God really got their attention with was the Passover. And that's when if you put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, the angel passed over your house. But if you didn't, the angel came in and your, your oldest son would die. 
And Pharaoh's son was one of those casualties. And that's what finally convinced him. After the Israelites marched out, Pharaoh changes his mind. Miraculous things start to happen. The Red Sea gets split. So the plagues happen. That's something only God can control. Then the Red Sea gets split. They walk across, the Bible says, dry land. So not only did this huge, massive body of water split on both sides, but when it did, the land they walked across was dry as a bone. Now, at this point, Pharaoh is really angry. He wants these slaves back because he's going to get back to square one. These buildings and pyramids and sphinxes that he wants are not going to get built by the slaves anymore. He's going to have to pay for labor, and he doesn't like that. He wants these people back, and he doesn't like the fact that he lost. So he gets the whole army, all the chariots, all the horses, they chase after him. As soon as they're in there and the last Israelite's footsteps out, God swallows them up and there goes the Israelite leader. I mean, the, the Egyptian leader. There goes all their chariots. There goes all their horses. Ironic to say that from that point on in human history, we don't hear a whole lot more from the nation of Egypt. Not as a powerhouse, at least. So now... Fast forward a little bit more. Moses has passed away. And a young leader who had watched him was his protege. Watches Moses lead and he takes over this mission of getting the people into the promised land. Moses dies before they get in. Now Joshua takes over and one of their first big battles was against the Amalekites and they win in sound fashion. And word has gotten out. Word has gotten out that these people called the Israelites are on the move. They have been on the move for over 40 years and God's miracles just keep following with them. And these stories are being told. And just like stories tend to do, they make their way from city to city to city. And now in the in the ears of the people in Jericho, they're already fearful people because they built a very fortified city. You don't build a wall that big if you're not fearful. So now they're sitting there and they've heard these stories. Okay, the Red Sea split. The Egyptian army, gone. The plagues before that. The Amalekites, two major wars. These Israelites were outnumbered, but they're scrappy. And it seems to be that they have some kind of power on their side that we don't have. So now there's fear. Rahab is fascinated by this. She lives in Jericho. She's heard the stories and she's watched the spirit of the fighting men in Jericho, the wind taken out of their sails. They are not just curious about this. They are fearful of it. And the second they catch wind that there are Israelite spies checking out the land, they go nuts. We got to get these guys out of here. They're coming for us. So, but Rahab, the reason she protects these guys is because all these stories had made their way to her. And she was fascinated by it. And these stories transformed in her mind and in her heart into belief that they were true. And that transformed in her into faith. You see, because if she'd have got caught for her little lie, she and her family would have been executed on the spot. Period. Now, Rahab is remembered as uh, someone who is uh, a pinnacle of faith, a godly woman. That's how she's remembered. 
So then the question that I always got when I did youth ministry was, well, then is it okay to lie? And I'll answer that in another sermon, not today. But that's something that you should research because it is a fascinating thing to look into. Because Rahab is remembered as someone of great faith. But the reason she has great, the reason she's remembered as great faith is because she lied to the people that were looking for the spies. So her belief led to her taking this risk, this huge risk of smuggling these guys out and saving them because what led to that then was they came back and they did destroy the city. But as Paul Harvey liked to say, now it's time for the rest of the story, right? Nobody knows a Paul Harvey reference in here? Wow. I thought I was going to, I thought I was striking a chord there. Anyway, turn over to Joshua chapter 6. So just to recap here, we have a woman who is a very high profile prostitute living in a very fortified, wealthy city, a pagan city who has just taken in and protected two Israelite spies and set them free. Chapter 6, starting at verse 22. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. See, the rest of the story is kind of beautiful, because it's proof that God can take the ugliness of our past and transform it into great, amazing things that only He can do. You know, some of us in this room carry around a burden of our past that's so ugly, and we say is so vile, and we carry that. And we don't want anybody to know about it, and we're ashamed of it, And we have ourselves convinced that God can't redeem it. God can't save it. God can't fix it. What I did was far too ugly. Okay, let's get into what God did in Rahab's life. So the spies kept their promise. They came back in. If you remember the story of Jericho, they get there. They didn't actually raise any armaments to take down the walls. They marched around the city walls, and on the seventh day, they blow the trumpets, and God, through his power, city walls collapse. But except for one section, there's only one section of the city walls that didn't collapse. Guess who happened to live in that section? Rahab and her family. So Joshua sees it, knows that God saved them, said, okay, guys, you know what she looks like. Go up, find her, get her family, and get her out because we've got, some, we've got some finishing up to do here. So they go in, get her family, bring her out. They go get the spoils. They put them in the Lord's house to build the tabernacle and to keep God's work moving. 
And then they burn the rest of it to the ground. And they say that Rahab and her family lived with the Israelites to the rest of her days. Now, we know that's true of Rahab. We know that's true. The spies kept their promise. She was taken in with the Israelites. She married a guy named Solomon. That might not sound too impressive to you, except for the fact that one of the spies that went into the city that day was Solomon. So after Rahab moves in and starts living with the Israelites, this belief that got transferred into faith became real practical living for her. And she started to live a life that honored the God that she had heard stories about, that she had faith in, and then eventually started to be the force behind how she lived her life. God, through his people, completely transformed this woman's life. doesn't stop there. Solomon and Rahab have a son, and his name is Boaz. Boaz, later on in the Old Testament, takes a wife by the name of Ruth. Ruth has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. And out of that line comes Jesus. Rahab the prostitute. Without her faithfulness, without her desire to honor God, even though she didn't completely understand what she was doing, without her willingness to step in and say, I don't care about the burdens of my past. I want this God that you say you obey, this God that has, has the power and authority to bring down these walls. I'm not going to let my past stop me from being an instrument in God's hands. That's what Rahab says. You see, because a past can be reconciled by a loving and powerful God through faith. We get two other snippets about Rahab in James chapter 2. You don't have to turn there, but in James chapter 2, verse 25, it says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And then, of course, where the most famous passage for Rahab outside of Joshua 2 is in Hebrews chapter 11, what we have, we have grown to say is called the Hall of Faith. Chapter 31 of this chapter, verse 31 of chapter 11 in Hebrews, this chapter that's all about the heroes of the faith. They call it the Hall of Faith, like it's the Bible Hall of Fame. If you made it into this passage, like, whoa, you're, you have arrived. Look at verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith. Listen to this. This is fascinating to me. People being faithful to God led to God doing amazing things through them. People being faithful to God led to God doing amazing things through them. And those amazing things that were done through them by the power of God became stories that got passed down through cities and towns as people stopped 
their caravans of camels and, and donkeys and horses. And as they walked through cities and stopped at the edges of cities at wells to water their people and to water their, uh, their, their, their plants that they were taking with them to new settlements. And as they watered their animals, they would tell these stories. As they met each other on the road, as they sat and ate meals, they'd share these stories. They were the big ones. There was no newspaper. There was no texting. There was no apps to keep them informed. They were informed of what was happening in the world around them because people were traveling in the world around them. And as they traveled to this area, they'd be like, oh, this is what I heard happened outside of Egypt. Did you guys hear about Jericho? That place just fell. I heard all they did was blow trumpets. These stories had made their way down through. God used regular, ordinary people, most of them with a past, most of them with baggage, most of them with with wounds and scars that they probably looked in the mirror and said, I'm not worthy to be used by God. And yet God still used them, and those stories made their way to the ears of this woman who was a prostitute who made a living sleeping with men who weren't her husband. They made it to her ears. And because of these stories, because these stories transferring into belief, and because belief transferring into faith, Rahab was able to take that information and act on it and say, well, if God is behind this, and God is doing the things for the Israelites, I want to be a part of that. So yeah, I'll help you. She did the best she could with what she had in front of her. Yeah, I'll help you. I have faith that these stories are true. And if if God is helping you do all these amazing things, I want to be a part of that. So yeah, whatever I have to do, go up on the roof. I've just put my flax out there to dry. Hide underneath it. I'll come back in. I'll take care of the rest. She does the best she could with what she has in front of her. And she's driven by faith. Faith in God led her out of her past. You see, because even though it says Rahab the prostitute in Scripture, I believe that's there to remind us who she was and who God transformed her out of. And the Bible tells us time and time again that God uses the foolish things of this world to confound or confuse the wise. God used a woman who was a prostitute to be one of the main players in getting his son here to be the all-atoning sacrifice for our sins. Without Rahab, you don't have Jesus. So these stories, maybe to you that's what they are. These stories passed down. Maybe you're even to the point where you start to believe them. And maybe even you're starting to wonder, is God who people around me have said he is? Or maybe you've believed God is who he says he is for years. My question is, what's God calling you to do? How's God calling you to respond? And what's holding you back from responding to it? What's keeping you from responding to be the person that God is calling you to be. Because God, once he has fully devoted followers, 
uses all of us to be unlikely heroes because we have a message of life. We have the message that God did send his perfect son into this world to atone for our sins, all of us, past, present, and future, all mankind. If you're here today and you are carrying a baggage from your past and you think that God can't forgive it, then you obviously don't know the power of the cross. Because God's power and authority that was shown on the cross conquered all of that sin. All of it. And there's nothing, nothing in your past that can keep God's grace from showering on you and transforming you into someone He can use for His glory. To reach your neighbors and your family members and your co-workers for Christ to share with them the life-giving message that you have been given, to look at God and say, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know all the answers. I have so much baggage in my past, but you know what? I believe it's true, so I'll help. How can I help? What can I do? That's what Rahab's response was. Yeah, I'll I'll do it. What, What can I do? So what's in front of her right then and right there is these two guys are going to get killed by people in Jericho if they find them. So she says, okay, I'll hide them. She's not motivated completely by her desire to be saved from an incoming doom. She doesn't even know for sure that's going to happen. But she believes these stories are true and she believes that God is who he says he is at least at her infantile state. And as she grew in her understanding that, God brought a husband into her life, and God used her to be one of the main players in getting Jesus here in the lineage of Jesus. You can read through that in Matthew chapter 1. And Rahab's in it. Rahab, King David's great-grandmother. So what's God calling you to do? What's keeping you from doing it? That obstacle, whatever that thing is, is what's keeping you from enjoying a robust and fruitful relationship with Jesus. And I promise you, the cross is powerful enough to take it from you. God, thank you. Thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you for the authority that you have, for the faith that you have uh, gifted us. Thank you that we can know you. God, that there's nothing in our past that's too big for you to save us from. God, thank you for that love. Thank you for the stories of people throughout Scripture like Rahab who stepped out of a world filled with sin into a world filled with life because you have given it. So God, I pray that if we're here today and we're afraid or we're just stubborn or we're angry or we're scared we're just in disbelief you would give us the courage, the faith, the grace to do the best we can with what's in front of us right now and let you handle the rest. 
powerful and amazing things can happen because of that. You used Rahab to hide two spies. And those men staying alive led to the fall of the city of Jericho. You did that. I pray that we're willing vessels here today. Arms wide open to your power and authority.